We love to stand for the reading of God's word, so let's do that right now. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. It starts with the rabble. (laughs) The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. And the people went about gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves. And it tasted something like that of olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. And Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Why have, what have I done to displease you, that you put this burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you promised an oath to their ancestors? And, when can, and where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing at me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have found that much favor in your eyes. And do not let my face see ruin. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that being the tabernacle where God lives. And I will come down and I will speak with you there and I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them and they will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. When you eat, when you will eat meat, because the Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. This is God's word. You may be seated. So this is our second week uh, in the book of Numbers. The Hebrew title for this is In the Desert, and Desert is the space between Egypt and the promised land, and that's what the book of Numbers is about. It's about the space between this no man's land, and this is no man's land is, is the space where God is going to transform his people. Once not a people are going to become God's chosen people, his holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Um, and, and we learn that it's, it's in the desert where, where God speaks and God's speech, it's, it's more than just a horoscope. It's more than just something that predicts the future. God's speech, like when it entered creation, is the very thing that transformed the world. And his speech has that transforming power. He speaks in the desert. It's also the place where God counts his people. And we learn that counting is literally uh, lifting up of the head. It, it, it's where every person matters because God lifts up the head of each person. And probably the thing that's most significant about this space between, between Egypt and promised land, the desert, is this is where God dwells. He pitches his tent. He lives right among them. 
And his presence is, as, as Isaiah says, is what makes the desert bloom. It, it, it turns our deserts into Eden. And, and that's why we as a church, we must not waste our deserts. Whatever shape or form they come in, we need to take hold of them. We need to take hold of God when we're in them. And let God do the work that he likes to do in his people, that work of transformation. Last week, uh, Ryan uh, brought us to that whole teaching on the Nazarite vow. In fact, this is the closest form of asceticism in our Bibles. But I want us to see that this call to denial, to say no, is, is not for the purpose of retreating from the world. A lot of Christian asceticism is, is, is about that. It's about retreating from the world. But what God is doing in the desert is he is preparing his people for engagement. That's what the promised land is going to be. And this, this vow, this Nazarite vow, it, it, it's really showing a good soldier because that's what God is doing in the desert. This is boot camp. He's raising them up to be his army. It's, it, it's turning a, a good soldier into a Navy SEAL. And, and, and it's not done for God. It's not done so, God, would you like me now because I've done all this for you. It, it, it's really done for the person who's doing it. It's, it's to push that identity that's rooted in God even deeper into their souls, that calling that God is placing on them um, deeper into them. Um, it's, it's preparing them. Uh, so today we come to this text, and we see that God's people are <laughs> they're whining, they're complaining. If only we had meat to eat. Now this is not the first time that they complain about not having meat. In fact, just days of getting out of Egypt and being in the desert, this is in Exodus 16, they said, if only we had died in Egypt. There we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you, Moses, you brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Okay, so they've already complained once. But Israel is now a year and a half into this thing. That's how long that, that they've been in the desert. And the verb is right. Verse 4. They're not just whining. They're wailing. I see Moses walking around the camp. Because it says in verse 10, Moses heard the people. In fact, I don't know why the NIV translates this out, but it's, it, it reads literally, Moses heard the people and every man in the gate of his tent was wailing. All of Israel wailing. And we have to understand here that they're not just wailing about not having food. It's the kind of food that they want. I mean, I... I can only imagine what this was like for Moses. Moses takes this up with God. Look at verses 11 to 14. I want to start with Moses. He asked the Lord, 
Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you? That you put this burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing at me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. Now, I can already tell that Moses is not in a good spot. It's because of all the times he uses the word I, me, and myself. And Moses is, is, is now making this whole situation all about Moses. Which means, as a leader, he's taking himself way too seriously. And this is easy for leaders to do, but I think it's easy for anyone to do, where we start to just think that everything depends on me, on us, and that I know what's really wrong, and I know what the real solution to this problem is, and I'm the one that needs to carry it out or it won't get fixed. Um, that's pride. Moses has, is, is now slipped into his own self-importance. This kind of pride and self-importance will always lead to despair. That's why Moses says what he says in verse 15. He says, if this is how you are going to treat me, then please go ahead and kill me if I found that much favor in your eyes. And he wants to die. And this is what we call a total breakdown. Now Moses isn't the only leader in the Bible to get this depressed. Elijah gets to the same place. Elijah says, says the same thing to God. He says, God, let me die. Jonah gets to the same place, utterly depressed. Lord, let me die. And then when you look at the reasons why both Jonah and Elijah get to that place of, of utter depression to the point where they want to die, you start to see they, like Moses too, are quite full of themselves. I mean, Elijah says to God, I'm the only one who hasn't bowed to Baal. And God says, no, you're not. Thousands of Elijah haven't bowed to Baal. Jonah, I mean, he, he, he has a whole pity party thinking that he knows better than God what God ought to do to Nineveh. How dare you, God, not send the fire of your judgment upon that city? <clears throat> Let me die, he says. I've had many bouts with despair, depressions, uh, from just my years of ministry. I think it's pretty common. I think it's pretty common for anyone. You don't even have to be in leadership. Um, 
You just have to care about God, the things of God. You just need to care about people. Um, and and you'll, that, that just makes us vulnerable. But it's very easy to get to this spot where you start thinking thoughts like, okay, God, look at everything that I do, yet they still complain. They're still not growing. They still don't really care. They're still unrepentant. And I remember in my early years of ministry, I came across a book by Eugene Peterson that rocked my world called The Unpredictable Plant, which is telling a pastor how to pastor. And he talked about this thing called ecclesiastical pornography. It's something that has stuck with me. Ecclesiastical pornography is essentially this belief that there's this perfect congregation. And pastors are tempted to think that it exists, and if only they could be a pastor of that kind of church. Listen to how he, I got a PowerPoint quote uh, from the book. Um, Look what he says. He says, parish glamorization is ecclesiastical pornography, taking photographs skillfully airbrushed or drawing pictures of congregations that are without splot or wrinkle, the shapes that a few parishes have for a few short years. These provocatively posed pictures are devoid of personal relationships. The pictures excite a lust for domination, gratification, for uninvolved and impersonal spirituality. And I think one of the reasons, not, not, not all the reasons, but some of the reasons why pastors leave, leave churches is because of ecclesiastical pornography. It's one of the reasons why people, people leave churches. They have this idea in their mind that there's this perfect church. And I always tell people who say, I know the perfect church is out there. I tell them not to go there because you'll ruin it. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> But this, I think, is, a, is what's going on in Moses. And he's alone in this place of despair. And this place of loneliness that, that Moses finds himself, you know, I've also been told this as, as being a leader um, in, in church world, that, that leadership is a lonely place, that that's the price of being a leader. And... I don't agree with that. I, I, I think that that is the price of a certain kind of leadership. It's leaders who fall into self-importance and pride. I mean, right now in your mind, just think about people who take themselves too seriously. People who give off this aura of self-righteousness, self-importance. Do you like being around them? Do you like hanging out with them? why self-important people, proud people, are lonely people. And see, the desert is not only going to expose Israel. The desert is also exposing Moses. And this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible never flatters its heroes. In fact, there are no heroes in the Bible. Just like there are no heroes in church world. Minus one, Christ. And the leaders in, in the Bible are, are rarely just mere men. They're just mere women. They're, they're, they're broken, weak sinners. And that's Moses. 
And, and I love how God responds to Moses because he's such a good friend. He, he, he comes to Moses like a brother. Look at verses 16 and 17. Or, or 18. Tell the people. No, actually, the Lord said to Moses in verse 16, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to, be, known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting. Uh, to my tent, that they may stand there with you, and I will come down, I will speak with you, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they then will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. (laughs) I love this. I talk to so many people today who want to be filled with the Spirit. And and that is an awesome desire, but know why and when God pours out his spirit. It's not so that self-important people can feel more important. It's so we can bear burdens. In fact, the name of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is paraclete. Paraclete means comforter. It literally means to walk alongside, to bear burden. And I can attest to this. The times when I most experienced the power of the Spirit working in me and through me is when I step into the hospital, when I go to stocking school, when I found out one of my football players' moms commit suicide, and all the other coaches are like, Standing there not knowing what to do. And you say, hey man, let's go for a walk. Boom, the spirit just, you can feel his presence. And I love this. When Moses gives away leadership, Moses is healed. One, he's no longer alone. Two, he now has 70 men who are in the trenches with him who are shouldering burdens. He's also getting healed of his self-importance because he gave up power. And his influence then became 70 times greater. And this is more true to who Moses is, which is why the next chapter will say about Moses, he is the humblest man on the face of the earth. I mean, that's quite a statement about someone. Because the true Moses doesn't believe in himself. The true Moses doesn't have confidence in himself. The true Moses, a true prophet of God, and the true prophet of God believes in God. He has confidence in God. And the true Moses is not someone who's grabbing for power. Uh, The true Moses is someone who's always giving power away. In fact, if you keep reading Numbers 11... You're going to see that after this event of God pouring out his spirit on the 70, that there are two other men who are not part of the 70 who are also filled with the Holy Spirit because they're bearing burdens. And Joshua, who's Moses' right-hand man, kind of sees this as a threat, and he comes to Moses, and he says, should I tell him to stop? And Moses, I love his response to this. It's awesome. He says, are you jealous for my sake? He says, I wish that all God's people were prophets and that everyone would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I say amen to that. Because here's the deal. Power and influence are not the same thing. 
Power is what someone has through titles, position, their resources. Influence is something that someone has simply because of who they are. Power, the more you share, the less you have. Influence, the more you share, the more influence you gain. And so many people today are seeking power and not influence. But the Bible teaches a leadership that's based on influence and not power. And Moses really is such a beautiful example of this because he joyfully shares power with 70 other men. Jesus is the epitome of it. He gave up all power. He became just a man like us. No title, no position like king or priest. Yet so many people just flocked to him and followed him because of his influence. And his influence was, was pushed into thousands. And the world was changed. And when the church becomes a place of power and people seeking power, we actually become power. Less. In fact, it's game over. And if you think I have a bone to pick on this, I kind of do. I've, I've been in church world long enough to know, I'm not talking crossroads right now, I'm talking church. So many people seeking power. I'll tell you, when the church is filled with people and leaders who seek to give up power, to bear each other's burdens, I'm telling you, God's spirit will rush in. He will fill us, and I'm telling you, we will have the potency to change the world. Oh, that everyone were a prophet, everyone a priest, everyone filled with the Holy Spirit. But you are God's people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. It's what God wants. Let's look at the people. They're complaining. More than complaining, they're wailing. Again, what they're wailing about, it's, it's not that we have no food. They have food. Every day, God is raining down manna for them to eat, this daily bread Psalm 78 uh, describes what manna actually is. It's, it's the food that the heavenlies themselves eat. It's, it, it's, it's the food, it's, it's angel food. It's, it's what God rains down every single day. I mean, I was thinking about this. You, you could have a night when you, you couldn't sleep and you could just step outside your tent and look up at the sky and, and that manna would come down. It was food from a whole other stratosphere. And it come down like snowflakes. But their complaint is, it, it, it's not about food. It's, it's not even really about meat because they just celebrated Passover. They are craving the food of Egypt. In fact, even to this day, engraved in some of the pyramids are the writings of Pharaoh. And one such writing uh, reads like this. Pharaoh spent 1,600 talents on radishes, leeks, onions, and free fish for the slave labor class to build this pyramid. Think about that. 
Israel's longing for the food of slaves. When they can have the food that angels eat. What's wrong with them? Well, God doesn't just need to get them out of slavery. The bigger task is he needs to get the slavery out of the people. They are still slaves. They still crave Egypt. And these wailings are the wailings of an addict. They can't live without meat. What about us? What can't we live without? How long would that list be? How would we respond if things from that list were taken from us? See, this is the danger of our time because we live in Egypt. We, we can gorge on anything our hearts desire. Have you ever stopped to just think about something almost all of us right now have in our pockets, and if it's not in our pockets, it's, it's probably in our cars? The phone. That everyone 10 years and, and, and older has today. This one gadget allows us to see whatever our eyes want to see. We can listen to whatever we want to listen to. We can purchase almost anything that we want to purchase. We can express whatever we want to express. And then we live in a time where we can eat whatever we want to eat. We can go almost any place we want to go. We can indulge in almost anything that we want to indulge in. And yet, I don't know how many of us respect our appetites. Because our appetites literally will direct our lives. Whether they be the cravings of our stomach or the intense desire for possessions or the craving for power and control, uh, the, the, the craving for pleasure. I mean, our appetites will go a long way in defining who we are and what we are becoming because we become what we eat. We become what we consume. We, we, we become what we take in. And we are living in such a time where we have this abundance of everything, where, we, where we're thoughtlessly indulgent, where we're consumers of, of almost everything under the sun, where we're gorging our souls. Ravi Zacharias said something years ago. I'll never forget it. This is what he said. He said, I am absolutely convinced that meaningless does not come from being weary of pain. Most of us think it does. He says, meaningless comes from being weary of pleasure. And that is why we find ourselves empty of meaning with our pantries so full. Think about that. See if you can beat me to uh, Ecclesiastes 5. Five verse 10. Just think about this one statement. Whoever loves money never 
has enough. <laughs> Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their in- income. This, too, is meaningless. In other words, the more we have, the more we want. The more we want, the less it delivers. And you, you can fill that word wealth in with anything. It doesn't have to be wealth. It's anything under the sun. You can fill it in with pleasure. The more pleasure we have, the more pleasure we want. The more pleasure we want, the more pleasure we need. The more pleasure we need, the less that pleasure delivers. And we hit that pleasure button harder, faster, 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 and it delivers less, less, and less. And our appetites just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And soon our appetite is directing the whole direction of our lives. Paul, before he met Christ, prided himself on being righteous. He says, as to the, as to the law of God, the Torah, he says, I'm blameless. But he says, in Romans 7, there was, there was one law, though, that, that just devastated him. It just cut him right to the heart and almost killed him. You can read about this in Romans 7. It was a command to, you shall not covet. Now, why this commandment? Why did this commandment just cut Paul to the heart? Because all the other laws are behavioral. He could look at him and say, yep, I haven't committed adultery. I've never stolen anything. Um, I'm, I'm very good to my parents. I honor them. I don't have little images in my house that I worship. But, but this last commandment, it's a matter of a person's heart. It gets at one's motives. Because to covet is, is more than just wanting something. It's this idolatrous wanting. In fact, the word for covet in Romans 7 there, it, it's found all over the New Testament to describe what's wrong with our hearts. It's the Greek word epithumia. It's often translated as lust, like in 1 John, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. Most often, this word epithemia is, is translated as evil desire, but it literally means, it, it means an over-desire. It's not then a desire for something that's evil, but it's an over-desire for something good or evil that leads to evil. So coveting is not that we necessarily want bad things, it's that we want things too badly. It's when we want something more than we want God. It's, it's saying that in order for me to be satisfied, to be secure, to feel like I'm worth something, God, you're not enough. So we covet. We lust. Think about it from this angle. Why do you get angry? Why are you always anxious? What's the root of your bitterness? Why are you jealous? It's because we covet. We want something and we don't have it. And this is what came into Paul's life and just wrecked him. And here's the deal. If, If we live in Egypt long enough, we start to think that our wants and our desires are our rights that we have a right to a 
comfortable life. We have a right to that pleasure. We have a, a right to a happy marriage. We have a right to this thing, to that thing. And this too is a path to misery and despair. James talks about the same word, epithemia. In James 1, 14 and 15. He says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. He says each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. That's that word epithemia. But it's not just a desire for something that's evil. It's a desire for anything that leads to evil. It's an over-desire. And it's really a sexual metaphor that he uses here because evil desire also can be translated as lust. Um, the word entice there uh, really means seduced. And our hearts can be seduced by anything. If only we had meat to eat. If only I had that job. If only I had more money. If only I had that kind of house. If only I lived in that kind of neighborhood. If only I had those kind of toys. If only I was married to that kind of person. If only I had those kind of kids. If only I could have those kind of parents. If only I could play that sport. If only I could have that girl. If only I could have that guy. If only I could have that beauty that talent, those grades, get in that school. I mean, these are the big things. Think about even just the little things our hearts say, I, I, I have to have this to be happy. From fashion to phones, Netflix, politics, politics. So many people are crying The economy, fandom, there's a football game going on right now. That thing pulls at my heart big time. Don't say anything, though. <clears throat> it's coveting. And see, what James is saying is that when our lustful hearts are seduced by any of these things, it can become a fatal attraction. He says there's, there's a conception and, and it gives birth and, and, and the child is sin and it doesn't even stop there. The child grows up and gives birth to a grandchild and that grandchild is death. And why do you think our world is in such a mess right now? Whether we know it or not, we've been made to crave God. And unless we get God into the center of our souls, we are literally, we're going to starve to death. That's why God says in Deuteronomy 8, I led you in the desert these 40 years in order to humble you and attest you to know it was in your hearts by making you hungry. God led him there to make him hungry. I mean, that almost sounds cruel, but this is what a loving parent does. God is taking away their candy. And any parent knows, this is one of the hardest things in parenting, is when you have to do something to your kids or for your kids that they think is hurting them, but you know it's helping them. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about desires. 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud plies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. God knows us. He made us. He made us with one huge appetite for himself to crave him. If we don't get him in the center of our souls, we need him more than our lungs need oxygen. We, we need him more than our bodies need food. That's how God made us. That's one of the reasons why he brings desert into our lives. It's why he brings desert in, 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 in numbers here to, to the people. He, he's starving them of their addiction to candy. So they can literally learn what their souls really crave. They crave God. And then sometimes as a parent, you have to let your kids learn the hard way. And I find this to be the worst kind of discipline. It's not the, 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 the discipline of the desert, like Deuteronomy 8, where God says the father disciplines his son. I had to take all, all the sweet things of Egypt away from you in this place um, to starve you of those things. It's not that discipline. It's, it's, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's the discipline of giving your children over. Kid, you want candy? All right, I'll give you candy. You can have as much candy as your soul wants. God does this. He just gives us over to our appetites. In this story, I mean, it's almost, it, it would be like a parent putting boxes upon boxes upon boxes of candy on the kitchen table and saying, kids, eat to your heart's content. That's what Numbers 11, 18 through 20, you want meat? You want meat? I'll rain meat down on you. Not just for a day, God says, not even just for a week, not even just for 20 days, for a whole month. And here it's like God says, I don't want you to just know the facts. I want you to know this through personal experience, that the stuff of Egypt is a mud pie. It's a mud puddle. In this, God did not force him to eat meat. He just made it available. And they literally ate it till it came out of their nostrils. In fact, what we didn't read, they so gorged themselves on this meat some of them became violently ill and die. They gorged themselves to death. And they call this place then Kibroth Hata Avah, the death of those who craved. I find this to be some scary stuff. Because I think our biggest problems today, we think they are external to us, but they're actually inside of us. They're our appetites. And we so quickly become addicts where we can't even live without the smallest things. 
And I don't know how long we are in this process, but it seems like God is just saying to us, you want meat? Have all the meat you want. And I got a simple application. It's twofold. We need to stop gorging on the world. And we need to start gorging on Christ. We need to deny ourselves. We need to start saying no. We need to downsize. We need to put limits on our indulgence. We need to take an inventory of the things that we can't live without and ask ourselves why. And we need to stop telling ourselves that we need this and this and this in order to be happy. We need to think this stuff all the way out. Like, if I really get this, or if I really possess this, will it really make me happy? Will it really make me feel like I'm worth something? Because the bottom line is, our world as it is, is fading. And when you and I hitch our heart to the things of this world, we're simply going to fade as it fades. But this isn't just about saying no, it's also saying yes. We need to start saying yes to God. We need to gorge on God. Jesus said, I am the bread of, of life. I am that bread that never spoils. It's, it's the bread that always satisfies. Black Friday will not satisfy. But we'll see, we'll, we'll, watch it. Learn from it. No career, no relationship, no sport, no pleasure, no spouse, no vacation, no upgrade, no, no success, no relationship, um, no promotion at work, no house, no toy, no trinket, will ultimately satisfy hearts that have been made to crave God. And we will become what we eat. And when we eat food that spoils, we will spoil as it spoils. And if you're wondering right now sometimes why our world is rotting, look no further than what we eat, what we take in. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread takes me in, will live forever. table set the ball now is in your court I'm let the Holy Spirit work on your hearts but tonight I want this table to be for those of us who want to repent because that's so much of, of, of what the table is, is about it, it, it's what it's for it's for us to take an inventory of our lives and, and look at our loves and, and, and the things that have pulled us from Christ and it's a time for us to confess those things. And repentance then is turning. It's, it, it's turning back. It's turning to Christ. It's to take him in. And so, God, tonight, we really believe what you said what you said, Jesus. You are the bread from heaven. You are the bread that never spoils. You are the bread that fully satisfies. You are the bread that leads to eternal life. 
And so God, in light of that, would you open uh, the eyes of our heart for us to see that. And God, I remember the prayer that my, my college pastor taught me years ago. He said, sometimes you just have to pray, God, help me to want, to want you. God, tonight, may, may there be repentance in this place, turning to you. And Jesus, may we come away f- from tonight saying, you're better than, you're greater than, you're more than. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.